0: Well, good morning, everyone. Whoa, got extra light there. Um, would you bow your heads with me uh, as we pray this morning? Lord, we are uh, we are just so so thankful for the gift of your word and the freedom that we have to hear read out loud. Lord, your word, which has power to change our lives, to renew our thinking, to restore our souls, to lead us in the way that you want us to go. Lord, we're thankful for your word, and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um... It's been a few weeks since we were in Galatians. We uh, are diving back in. We're chapter 4 here. And as we do that, I just thought it would be a good idea to kind of refresh our minds so we can get back in track, back in the Galatians train of thought here and begin to uh, get back with Paul here. So if you remember... Since leaving Galatia, Galatia is a place where Paul visited on one of his missionary trips. He'd established churches there. And since leaving there, Paul hears that the new Christians there are, are drifting away from the gospel that Paul had preached to them, right? These young believers appear to have been told that uh, the, the, to be true go- uh, Christians they now need to also start adopting Jewish customs and rituals and start obeying the Jewish law. Basically, in order to be fully saved, these non-Jewish Christians need to adopt the law in totality, even to the point of being circumcised. It's as if someone came to them and said, well, you know, that's nice that you have Jesus. Like, that's a good start. But if you really want to persevere, if you want to be a good Christian to be truly saved. Now you have to also adopt the Jewish law with all its rules and regulations. And Paul, hearing this news, he blows a fuse, right? He's like, are you kidding me? This goes against everything I taught you when I was there. Everything that that you learned from me when I was in your midst, when I was ministering to you. I think that's why... He skips all the normal sort of flowery introductions in Galatians chapter 1. It's why he goes to such great lengths to emphasize his apostolic authority in in chapter 2. It's why he goes so far as to call the Galatians foolish in chapter 3, right? He cannot stand the thought of his spiritual children being led astray from the true gospel. If you remember, uh, at the end of our last sermon on Galatians, we looked at Galatians uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 7, uh, verses 4 through 7, or 1 through 7. But just this last section here, he's reminding them. He said, look, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then this incredible concluding thought, which he offers to them. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is incredible, right? This... Last week, we celebrated Easter, an amazing day, right? And that's the moment when we celebrate this exact astonishing fact that that Paul's talking about. That this is part of what we're celebrating at Easter, the fact that, that we've been adopted, that we're no longer slaves, that we're heirs through God, that we're redeemed, set free. We've been given this enormous inheritance by God. You know Easter Sunday, it's it's like a like a metaphorical stake in the ground, right? Where we're saying everything I've heard and I've been taught to believe it's it's true. it's it's real. I really am no longer a slave. I really am a son or daughter of God. I really have this inheritance as an heir to the kingdom. And in our passage today, Paul's going to pick up this thought right from where he left on and say, So, in light of all these things, how could you then turn away? What we're going to see in verses 8 through 20 is a series of three passionate pastoral pleas from Paul. Would you expect anything less than a passionate plea from Paul? <laughs> He's fired up about everything all the time. But three Passionate pleas from Paul uh, today in our passage. First, a passionate plea don't turn back. And then, second, he's going to plead with them to be like Paul. And then, finally, a plea for Christ to be formed within them. So, look with me at the text here, starting in verse uh, 8. If you have your Bibles, uh, Galatians 4, starting in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Do you hear the, the passionate plea in his voice? It's as if Paul is saying, Look, in light of everything I've taught you, in light of all these incredible gifts that God has given you, in light of the fact you've, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, don't turn back. Don't turn back. You've been given so much. Now, unlike many of us, the Galatians all came from non-Christian homes, right? They they, they came from pagan backgrounds, worshiping all kinds of idols and false gods. And even if they didn't feel like it at the time, Paul says that they were in slavery, spiritual slavery to these so-called gods, you have to pause here for a moment because I know with Paul sometimes it can be confusing. It's like on the one hand, he says, oh, well, these are not really gods at all. And on the other hand, well, you were enslaved to them. So how can these both be true? On the one hand, idols are, are nothing, right? They're just, they're just wood and stone and, and metal. I mean, how can a piece of gold, however elaborate and beautiful, ever bring peace and comfort It can't. It's just just an object. It's just stuff. But if these so-called gods and idols are not real, then how can anyone be enslaved to them? Well, Paul is clear in his letter to the Corinthians that behind all these false religions, all of them, whatever they may be, there are, in fact, real demonic forces. Not gods in the sense that God is God. There is only one God. But there are real dangerous demonic forces behind these idols and their goal is to corrupt and to destroy and to enslave and to lead us away from God. Now undoubtedly many people at the time really did not see it that way and honestly the same is still true today. Right? The popular view in our world is that life without God is liberation and freedom. Life under any religion, really, is, is, is what is oppressive. It's such a, a view, maybe a convenient straw man for TV shows or movies or blog posts or whatever it is. But when you talk with real people, when you talk with your neighbors, with your family members, with, with your coworkers, when you get beyond the, the surface niceties and the the chit chat and people start to open up about the real challenges they're facing in life you begin to see what this spiritual slavery looks like even today slavery to the the deceitfulness of wealth and the toxic corrupting influence it can have on families Slavery to the pursuit of success as men and women pursue ever-elusive meaning and significance in their careers or through the sporting endeavors or academic success of their children. Even when it's not spoken out loud, you can sometimes see the emptiness or you can hear the longing behind their words scratched below the surface and even the most Seemingly successful and wealthy people around you are desperately lonely, facing the same struggles as everyone else. Look, without Jesus in their lives, this this way of life is not just sort of less preferable or somewhat less ideal or in need of some improvement, but hopeless enslavement to spiritual forces of darkness. It's spiritual death because it's life lived permanently apart from the author of life. Look, there are dozens of people in your specific sphere of influence. People who literally live next door or behind you in the yard uh, that backs up onto yours. People who work a cubicle over or nowadays you see on a little picture on your Zoom screen living in spiritual slavery, people who need to hear the gospel, who need to be set free, who need to hear your voice speaking into their lives, bringing hope, bringing life, pointing them to Jesus. Are you willing to look past their discomforting lifestyle choices or their addictive habits or their wildly different moral codes to see the broken and lonely people that they are underneath will you pray as jesus commanded us to do for your enemies people who are actively trying to tear down your face uh, faith oppose everything you stand for people who are literally trying to uh, uh, constrain your freedom to worship openly and, free, uh, and freely, will you pray for them? Will you show the same grace and compassion that God has showed to you? Look, we have been appointed, you have been appointed as ambassadors of Christ. Sent to take this same gospel that Paul took to the Galatians has been entrusted to you to bring to the people that God has placed sovereignly in your life in order that they too might be set free from slavery to these false gods. Okay, so having said all of that, now I want you to look at verses 9 and 10 because Paul is about to shift gears and make a really shocking comparison here. The turning back that the Galatians is, are considering is not turning back to a pagan uh, way of life. right? The turning back they're considering, it, it actually refers to the adoption, the addition of Jewish customs and laws to what they already believe. It's confusing, right? He's like, don't turn back to that. Well, what are they turning back to? Well, what they're turning back to is this addition of other stuff. So how does this make sense? Well, remember what Pastor Michael is always saying. Context is king. Right? And nowhere in this letter does Paul address any tendencies tendencies among the Galatians towards idolatry. So we know he's not saying, hey, don't fall back into idolatry. Not the point of his letter. What we have instead throughout Galatians is an extended one thing, adding Jewish law to faith in Christ. Almost every single paragraph is focused. On that challenge. Paul's not worried about them falling back into pagan practices. He's deeply troubled about them trying to adopt obedience to the Jewish law as part of what it means to be a Christian. Doing so, in Paul's view, doing that would be the equivalent of turning back, not to a life of idolatry, but to a life of enslavement. So, when Paul talks about days and months and seasons and years, what he's most likely talking about here are Jewish festivals, Jewish special days, Passover, Sabbath, uh, uh, the Day of Atonement, Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, all those feasts and special holidays. This is not a slam on the Old Testament, right? This is not even a slam on the law itself. What Paul recognizes here is that Jesus changes everything. The law was given by God as a guardian until in the fullness of time God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law. Right? This is what Christians celebrate every single year on Resurrection Sunday. Victory in Jesus. And that means that all these holy days, the entire Jewish legal system, none of it is required... Of the people of God anymore. In fact, laying that weight on the Galatians would put them under the same kind of slavery that they were under when they were worshiping these false gods. That's the comparison Paul is trying to make. Look, maybe uh, this picture will help. For Paul, I think there are really only two spheres of life, right? You either have life without Christ, like before Christ, which is a life of slavery, or you have life with Christ, which is a life of freedom. That's it. And within this framework, it doesn't really matter what that alternative system of belief is because Christ is a determining factor. You could put whatever you want under this category here. Life without Christ, Hinduism, uh, 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 Islam, uh, atheism, Obedience to their Jewish law. Anything that was happening without Christ is slavery. Because, it, look, uh, it's like Jesus is the pivot. He's the hinge around which everything else turns. So although pagan idolatry is obviously heinous, far worse than pious jewish observance of the law that's not the comparison he's making he's just saying anything that is apart from christ is a life of enslavement and imprisonment awaiting redemption all paul is doing here is emphasizing the dramatic earth-shattering difference that jesus's life death and resurrection made in the history of the world. Like literally earth shattering. Remember Matthew 27, 51, there was an earthquake, literally. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, not as a metaphor, not as an image, but literally torn like God is saying, this is done. This old system is over. This is something new that I'm beginning And to go back to that old way of belief is to go back to a period of imprisonment, enslavement, guardianship. Which means once you have Christ in your life adding anything, anything else to the gospel, whether for justification or for sanctification, is a form of turning back to this life of slavery and imprisonment. So what would Paul be pleading with you to avoid adding to your faith in Christ? Where are you slowly and perhaps subtly adding extra pieces to the gospel in order to prove yourself to God or to others? Don't do it. Don't turn back. Jesus changes everything. A second point passionate plea that Paul is going to make is to be like me. Paul says, become like I am. You know, when I was a kid, I, uh, maybe some of you had this I had this poster up on the wall in my bedroom. There's a guy standing there like this with a basketball in his hand. You know, right? Michael Jordan. Wings. Man, I loved that. I would go up there and I'd stick out my arms. I'd be like, I want to I be like I want to be like Mike, right? I mean, we knew nothing about his character and personality and private life. But but all I knew was I wanted to be like Mike, right? So we'd go to the basketball uh, court and see like how far I could jump, how far I could get from the free throw line, which wasn't very far. Um, <laughs> all this height wasted. <laughs> I just could never get the knack of basketball. So that's all right. God had different plans. Now, Paul didn't have any fancy posters or or marketing campaigns, but he often called people to follow him, right? Not because he was seeking attention, like, be like me because I'm so amazing. No, Paul called people to follow him as he followed Christ. In other words, the goal was always Christ-likeness, not Paul-likeness, Modeling their lives on Paul was simply a means to, to an end. I want you to be like Christ. We have something similar here in verse 12. So if you look with me at the text, Paul says, Brothers, brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You know, the entire tone of the letter shifts at this point, right? We, he, he's just had this fiery intensity for three, uh, three and a half chapters. And Paul pauses these lengthy scriptural arguments here to focus on the deep emotional bond that he has with the Galatians. They're not faceless names on a piece of paper. They're not opponents in a doctrinal debate. They're truly his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he reaches out to them now pleading with them for, for their agreements. I can imagine, like I'm even doing it, it's like I can imagine Paul's like, like, why don't do this? You know, I can't speak for every single pastor around the world, but all the pastors I know have a deep and genuine love for their people. The people may not always see it, In difficult times, they may even question that or or challenge it. But the pastors that I'm friends with are all deeply committed to their congregation, to shepherding their people. We were visiting my uh, brother-in-law over Easter, and his pastor ends all his emails and letters and everything by saying, I love being your pastor thought, that's awesome. I I may steal that. I love being your pastor. I think that's exactly the way Paul feels. I love being your pastor. Man, it's frustrating at times, but I love it. I love you deeply. So what does Paul say he wants them to do here exactly? The command he says is, become like me. In part one, we talked about how Paul pleads with the Galatians, don't turn back, right? No U-turns allowed. But now he says, instead, I want you to join me in pressing forward, in pursuing Christ. Now for Paul, this could mean a lot of different things, but in the context, I think his focus is on a rejection of the rigid requirements of the law. Look, Paul came to faith. He was saved apart from the law so so clearly the law is not required for salvation but more than that he's come to realize that reliance on the law for for sanctification is not required either that is he wasn't saved by the law initially and he doesn't remain saved or grow in his faith by ritual legal observance of the law anymore I think that's what Paul means when he says, for I also have become as you are. Namely, I now live for all intents and purposes as if I was a Gentile Christian. Now I know Paul did still participate in some Jewish festivals and customs, but those, those passages in acts are descriptive, not prescriptive. What I mean is that Luke gives descriptions of what he sees Paul doing, but he never says, and you should therefore do likewise to be a good Christian. Moreover, when Paul himself teaches explicitly uh, on this topic, he never says, observe the law. In fact, he goes to great lengths to say the opposite of that. So Paul may have felt freedom personally, as a Jewish Christian, to go to the temple or celebrate Passover. But it was never out of, out of rigid duty or obedience to the law. And it was certainly not an added burden he would ever lay on Gentile believers. You know, in our own life, I think sometimes a, what we might call like, like a simple faith in Christ can sometimes feel insufficient, like, I'm, like it's too simple, it's too basic Like, I'm not doing enough. Right? Maybe you've encountered Christians who who want to claim all the grace of God without ever truly submitting to the lordship of Christ and and the demands that places on their lives. But sometimes I think uh, our own feelings of guilt and shame can overwhelm us and, and leave us feeling like we should be doing more. Like we should be trying harder. Like, if you do lent uh, you know 30 days of uh, of lent is good so well 90 days of lent must be even better right good pious spiritual disciplines can quickly turn christianity into a self-help religion like if i pray this particular way then god's going to be more likely to answer or if i fast longer or more intently then god will bring more blessing or Worse still, if I can punish myself in some way by self-harm or extreme self-denial, then maybe these feelings of shame and guilt will go away and God will forgive me. Do you see how easily we can twist and warp God's good gift of grace with our own fallen insecurities and doubts and fears? And Paul says... Set all that thinking to one side. And instead, be like me, a weak and humbled follower of Jesus. Look at the next verses, 13 through 15. Paul says, look, you know it was because of a a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given to them to me. Look, Paul's ministry to the Galatians was rooted in weakness and humility and pain and suffering. His evangelism came from a place of neediness and helplessness. The gospel he presented to them was not one of power and prestige, but one of sacrifice and humility. We have no idea what this ailment was that Paul suffered from. But it's a vital reminder that illness is not a sign of God's displeasure. If even Paul himself, an apostle chosen by Jesus Christ to take the gospel and launch a missionary movement throughout the Mediterranean, if even Paul got this sick, You better believe that you are going to face similar physical ailments yourself. But here's the thing. While we tend to see our our illnesses and sicknesses as, as hindrances, as setbacks, even signs of weakness or failure or punishment, clearly God looks at our diseases very differently. Stomach flu is not a roadblock To God. Cancer is not going to thwart his plans for you. Paul was so sick that he describes it as being a trial for the Galatians, or in some other translations, a temptation, a temptation for them to reject his message. But instead of doing that, the Galatians bent over backwards to care for Paul, seeing him as a messenger for god they would have done anything for him and god worked through that to plant many new churches as a result look i know accepting help from others is humbling it's embarrassing even i personally i hate being sick because i don't like giving the impression that i need someone's help that that's that's pride That's God using sickness to reveal the pride in my life that says, I don't need help. But sickness makes it clear, I don't have it all together. And I literally can't do it all by myself. I need other people. I need God's help in my life. And if we can push past our grumbling and our complaining and whining, chief of sinners, when I'm sick, in that regard... If I can push past that in those moments to see the many incredible gospel opportunities God wants to set before us in the middle of our trials, then sickness can also be greatly used by God to spread the gospel and grow his kingdom just as he did in Galatia. So Paul's second passionate plea is for the Galatians to be like him, living free from the law and in all humility and service to Christ. Our third passionate plea from Paul here is is for Christ to be formed in you. And thinking of that, this is a picture of the Basilica de la Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, Spain. It was designed by the visionary architect Antony Gaudi, it's filled with all kinds of, I wish you could see it up close, all kinds of crazy patterns and colors and shapes. It's totally unlike any other uh, building you've seen. And although construction began 139 years ago in 1882, they are still working to finish it. (laughs) You can see those cranes are not like refurbishing, they are building actively. I have no idea when it's going to be done. In fact, Anthony Gaudi, who had the vision to build it, when he died, only 25% of the building had been completed. He had a vision for what it would look like, but only caught the tiniest glimpse of that before he died. And I think it's a fitting image for us as we move to this third and final section, focusing on Paul's plea for Christ to be formed in the Galatians. You look at verse 16 uh, and 17. Have I then become an enemy by telling you the truth? They, the opponents, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish... I could be present with you and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. You can feel the emotion again here from Paul, right? He's confused and frustrated. He's desperate to be with his people, to share with them everything that he's uh, trying to explain in person. But his final passionate plea comes in verse 19 and it's for, for Christ to be formed in his people. Paul describes here the emotional turmoil and pain that he's in. He he said it's it's like a like a mother giving birth to her children. Now, I've been with Kari all four times that she gave birth. Obviously, this is exaggeration cuz nothing can compare to actually giving birth, right? That no way. But the point is that Paul is he's stretching, he's reaching for, for some kind of way to express the intensity and depth of his emotion and his, his, his concern for the people uh, of Galatia. But what does it mean for Christ to be formed in you? I think Paul is talking about the process of, of spiritual growth and maturity that happens as we follow Jesus what we call sanctification, right? It's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit slowly shaping and and forming us to the image of Christ. It's God the Father working in and through us to rid us of sin and and equip us for the ministry he's called us to, to do. It's Jesus leading us and guiding us as we seek to love God and love others. But it's also our work, abiding in the vine, being nourished in Christ. It's our work partnering together with God and through the power of the Holy Spirit to press on towards the goal, to put off the old self and and to put on the new self, to give and serve and love and sacrifice and read and pray. It's a process of change, right? It's not a one-time thing. It's it's a bumpy road. It has all kinds of ups and downs along the way. And it works best in community, like we have here with brothers and sisters in Christ. And all of this takes time, a lifetime. You know, we could do a whole sermon just on this topic of Christ being formed within you. If you want, as have, have a great book on this topic. This is called Christ Formed in You by Brian Hedges, and if you're interested, I can tell you more about that after the sermon. But I, maybe, maybe some of you are familiar with, with Ruth Graham Bell, right? Billy Graham's wife. She was born uh, in China to uh, missionary parents, and Uh, During her time there, uh, she grew up there for a while, and and at the end of her life, on her tombstone, she had them put this on her tombstone. And if you can see at the bottom there, it says, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Right? (laughs) End of construction. Thank you for your patience. I think that's what Paul is describing here this lifetime work of Christ being formed in you, a process that will last all the way through until you enter into God's presence Himself. But there's one last thing here that I want to close with. If you look here, right up at the top, there's this Chinese symbol here. And this means. Righteousness. It's actually made up of two symbols. If you look here, this one at the top is a Chinese character for lamb, and this uh, character here is a Chinese character for for me or I. And together they mean righteousness. And I think once you get past the, the witty commentary here at the bottom from Ruth. The construction process was not something she achieved in and through her own strengths. This was not a process that she willed herself into being. She's recognizing that above everything else is Christ, the work of righteousness. She was made righteous through the sacrificial work of Christ in her life. And Paul's passionate plea for the Galatians that they not turn back, that they become like him, that they have Christ formed in their lives, is fueled by and and ruled by and controlled by the righteous power of the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, at work in and through our lives, who will strengthen and sustain us to the end. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for this gift of new life, the gift of your Holy Spirit, who is the power that we need to resist the temptation to turn back, to press on like Paul, and to work to have Christ formed in us. Lord, we're so thankful for your work in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.